Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesday each month. We will be sharing information through interviews with General Manager Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials and events at MBFI, as well as producer profiles from around the province, and information on their own trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca. David and Diane have farmed in Minto, Manitoba since 1980, when a chance to rent 300 acres became available. Armed with $4,000 and a Master of Science in Plant Science and a lot of determination, they raised a family of four and are blessed with nine grandkids. They also grew the farm to 6,000 acres and built a contract egg research business. AgQuest grew to have 26 research crews at five locations across Western Canada. The Rourkes have tried many enterprises along the road, including feeding 15,000 pigs a year, with an on-farm feed mill and a complementary ethanol plant. They have milked 500 goats and grown high-generation potato seed from tissue-cultured plantlets. They also tried their hand at breeding wheat, corn, and soybeans, as well as a short stint at organic farming. Their emphasis today is on helping to create a brighter future for their grandkids. David wrote the book, A Road to Fossil Fuel-Free Farming, An Example and a Challenge, in 2021 and started his PhD titled In Search of Net Positive Carbon Grain Farming, Innovation in Policy and Practice. He is determined to help bring innovation to the prairies, which will transform agriculture from being a contributor to global warming to becoming a global warming mitigation champion. The book can be found at fossilfuelfreefarming.com and they have a webpage at workfarms.com, which describes the farm and posts some of the on-farm research conducted over the last several years. David and Diane's oldest daughter, Dana, now owns and operates the research business, eggquest.com. Welcome, David. It's a pleasure to have this conversation with you about your journey to managing your family farm operation, taking on the pursuit of completing a PhD, and on your recent book. I recently read your book, A Road to Fossil Fuel Free Farming, An Example and a Challenge, and wanted to discuss some topics you raised, your farming practices, your goals, and trials you have coming up on the farm in the future. Before we get started on that, can you share a bit about your history and background, especially as it relates to science and agriculture? Yes, certainly, and and uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. I, I actually grew up in Winnipeg, so I'm a first-generation farmer. I did my Bachelor of Science in Ag in Plant Science and then followed that with a Master's in Science. In 1980, my wife and I had a chance to rent a half section of land and we had $4,000 in our pocket. So we started farming. But I also had a full-time job with the University of Manitoba working on winter wheat agronomy out here on our own farm. But in order to kind of expand the farm and the fact that the university job was coming to a close, it was only a term position, I started a company called AgQuest, which is a contract ag research company. Started that in 1983 and grew it from one station to five research stations across Western Canada. My oldest daughter now runs that company and we've expanded the farm and we we own about 6,000 acres now. Yeah, we've done a lot of things to try to figure out how to, to move forward. We've done different plant breeding exercises in wheat and corn and soybeans. Uh, we grew high generation seed potatoes with tissue culture. We raised 15,000 pigs a year for almost 10 years. We've tried grazing some cattle and we've milked about 500 goats. Had our own feed mill, built an ethanol plant. Um, but the, 
the things that stick best are the grain farm and the research business. Do you remember when you had that first moment of farming is what I want to do for the rest of my life? My grandpa was a butcher in Minto, and I used to come out here, and my aunt was married to a farmer, and I used I kind of said I, I went to school in Winnipeg, but I grew up out in the country. So there wasn't a, a moment. I just always enjoyed being in the country. And, you know, my, my uncle had, had left the area and grandpa never was a farmer. He he helped on the farm, but he, he actually never seeded or combined. But that first year when we came out, my wife and I to start farming, it was pretty scary, even though I'd worked for other farmers and stuff. But to do it all on our own and not have anybody there, that was a bit scary. I can imagine you have a very diverse background in all of the things that you've tried on the farm. And a lot of those things you've discussed in your book and your book was published in 2021. So it's very recent. Tell me, first of all, how does it feel to have a book that is finished, published and in the hands of producers? Well, it was something that I, I wanted to try to change the narrative in Western Canada. There's lots of farmers that either don't believe in climate change or don't believe that it's caused by man or think that we're already doing enough or that we're so late that it doesn't matter what we do. And there's a few of us that think we need on behalf of our grandkids or children to try to make a difference. So getting the book out was important. I tried to leave it as humble as I could because <laughs> I don't I don't know all the answers. And the in the title, it says, A Road to Fossil Fuel-Free Farming, an example and a challenge. So the example that I used was no-till regenerative organic. And we had been no zero-till for 30-some years. And then I'd always been interested in organic. My son had decided that we should try it. And we tried it on a pretty large scale. But we could sustain ourselves financially. But... Because of the lack of rainfall, it was difficult to get the small seeded legumes and cover crops to grow on demand. So we tried a lot of different things. And, and I was kind of sad to leave that community because it's a great community, the organic people. But we just couldn't see a way forward in terms of soil sustainability. And the fact that I, in order to have environmental sustainability we have to build our soils that's the only thing that really gives us true resilience so i'm glad i wrote it that way because i challenged people in the book to to come up with their own example of fossil fuel free farming and uh, i wanted to make sure that they knew, knew that there wasn't just one answer that we all have to kind of work towards that end and it'll be a little different for everyone and so as it turns out it's a little different for us even just a year later It's a great way to at least start the conversation and to get people really thinking about things. What was your main goal in writing and sharing the book? And you've maybe kind of alluded to that already. The main goal was to challenge the business as usual thinking that maybe we either didn't have a problem or that we couldn't solve the problem. But we've always evolved in agriculture. At at one point in time in the prairies, summer falling was best management practice. And then we found out that it actually destroys soils and causes erosion and so we changed we innovated and found better ways to to do it so that that's kind of the challenge you know we have a pretty good system except it's not perfect and in the book i indicated there's at least 16 things that i'm not sure are sustainable on our own farm we're trying hard to eliminate those or, or minimize those things that are not sustainable You share your feelings on how rich and blessed we are on pages 18 and 19, which is a beautiful way to start the book and something that is easily forgotten and underappreciated today. Would you mind just reading that passage and the questions you have following it, which I think really gets to what is a deep root of why this is so important to you? Sure. Today, I tell my kids we live better than kings or queens could have ever dreamed of even 100 years ago. My family has abundant food, comfortable housing, geothermal heating, and cooling, and it's set 22 degrees year-round. We have transportation at our beck and call, both by ground and through the air. We have immediate access to universal health care. We are safe. We don't need a personal army or even security. We have access to entertainment without leaving our homes. We can communicate face-to-face with anyone around the world in seconds, at least virtually. 
And we have a tremendous amount of freedom, freedom to practice the religion, freedom to go to school, freedom to vote, to run for elected office, and freedom to write and otherwise express our views. Indeed, as some say, if you were born or live in Canada, you've won the lottery of life. We are lucky, blessed and fortunate. Don't get me wrong, there's no silver platter. And the good life does require effort. As my mother would say, if it's worthwhile, it will require effort and lots of work. And while some start with better circumstances than others, some do amazing things despite their circumstance. But is this blessed life sustainable? Will the good times last? Will we hand over a world that is a little better to our children? You hit some really big, deep topics just in those couple paragraphs there that I think we often don't stop and really think about how much we have and about all of the blessings that we have and the idea of what we're leaving to our kids and our grandkids. So I just thought that was such an important passage of the book. And for me, that kind of seemed like a a bit of a theme as you went through the book, just thinking about future generations and what was going to be left for them. Yeah, we're blessed enough to have nine grandchildren, but it, it particularly the younger ones, they, they need our help and we should have helped long ago, but we have kept ignoring what the science has told us. <laughs> and the science is old. 1850 <laughs> is when they first discovered the greenhouse effect. In 1982, I believe, Dr. Jim Hansen wrote papers on, on the concentration of CO2 and the correlation with warming. And, you know, it, it wasn't the immediate apparent danger. So we just keep going business as usual. It's interesting that it's it's a topic that's been recognized for years, but I don't know that it's really been talked about until recently. It seems like it's a, a new kind of expanding topic where this conversation maybe could have been happening for years and years. Yeah, it doesn't seem real, I guess, until it affects you. And even then, it, it seems hard to believe that more people aren't concerned. But floods and, and the fires in BC, even our own farm, um, we've seen a million dollars worth of damage in the last 10 years. Luckily, we have insurance. Nobody's life was threatened, but if we don't have those government programs and insurance, it could get dire. Yeah, I agree. On pages 35 and 36, you list a number of practices which you have identified as unsustainable in the egg industry. Can you shed some light on what they are and why, in your opinion, they're unsustainable? Just a bit of context. I I was in a meeting uh, that happened to be in a boardroom downtown Winnipeg in the Grain District. And and we were talking about the the southern U.S. as being unsustainable in terms of their, their dairy farms that were relying a lot on ancient stored water for both irrigation and and watering the cattle. And one of the participants said, be careful uh, where you throw stones. You may not be as sustainable as you think. And I was a bit confused for a moment. I, you know, I thought here I'm practicing zero till. I'm using the four hours of fertilizer management. My newest farm equipment already had the latest emission technology. So I kind of said, you know, what what do you mean I'm not sustainable? But after that meeting, I I took a step back and just kind of took a look at, you know, with kind of fresh eyes, a critical view of our farm. And certainly the things that I identified that were not sustainable, they they included not using rainfall where it falls. Two would be an increased loss of productive land from saline seep. And that's perhaps aggravated by monoculture zero-till that when I graduated from my master's after doing zero till, I thought that was going to solve all our problems. It's certainly in the right direction, but it hasn't solved everything. Number three was a depletion of over 50% of our native soil carbon. Four is excess water runoff resulting in downstream flooding. Five would be nutrient loss, atmospheric downstream and into groundwater. Six is a heavy reliance on fossil fuel-based fertilizers and motive fuels resulting in increasing greenhouse gas emissions. Seven is a relatively low efficiency of commercial fertilizers. Eight was increasing resistance to pesticides. Nine would be increasing non-target negative effects of some of the pesticides that we do use. Eleven would be continued, albeit lowered amount of soil erosion. 
you know, the best thing to control soil erosion is trees and perennials. The annual crops, it's it's hard to cover the ground adequately. There's a lack of integration of livestock for soil building. And there's a continued loss of habitat for natural biodiversity. So those are the main ones that I identified as things that really weren't sustainable. And certainly the world is kind of catching on to those things now. From your point of view, what is truly sustainable agriculture and how does that look for farms to be sustainable? According to the UN IPCC special report 1.5, the report that says, you know, what we need to do in order for life on earth to be relatively normal. It, you know, I boil it down to two simple things. We have to stop using fossil fuels, stop adding to that carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere that causes the warming. And we have as much as possible try to take that excess carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere using plants. So it's a combination of the regenerative principles, which include having plants grow on the soil for, from snow to snow, having limited amount of soil disturbance, uh, either through tillage or harsh chemicals, or, or even just natural senescence of one crop to another, having cover on the soil so that we don't bake it and, and cause erosion. Uh, having cattle in the rotation, if you can do it, is, is an excellent way to build soils. And then I know there are ways to still maintain yields and not use fossil fuel-based nitrogen fertilizers. We still need some work in some of the areas, but, but it is possible. It's a combination of using legumes, the natural soil bacteria that come along when you don't till the ground anymore, so under zero till. There's at least eight companies working on what they call asymbiotic nitrogen fixers, and they have a ways to go before they're really truly a good investment, but I, I believe they're coming along nicely. There are some companies working on what they call green anhydrous ammonia. And then there's the four R's of, of how do you make those inputs as efficient as you can and reduce the emissions. And then there's substitutes for diesel fuel. You know, most of us think, you know, if I can't have diesel fuel, I can't farm. Mr. Diesel, when, when he invented the diesel engine, he used vegetable oil. And you can buy a brand new Deutz or Fent tractor in Europe that's equipped to burn straight vegetable oil right out of the factory. So I think we could do more work on that. I know there's companies that are working on synthetic diesel fuel, which is based on vegetable oil. And there's, of course, biodiesel. And other companies are working on hydrogen and even green ammonia can make a fuel that will run a diesel engine. And then there's, of course, electrification of various things. I would find it difficult to electrify a combine that's used relatively short period of the, the year. And, and for extended hours, sometimes it never gets shut off. We go right through the night and in, into the next day. But, you know, those are the things that are going to make us sustainable. That's part of my PhD thesis. It's called In Search of Net Positive Carbon Grain Farming in Western Canada, Innovation in Policy and Practice. I know in reading your book, even just kind of taking a step back from our own operation and thinking about how much fossil fuels we actually use is much higher, I think, than I expected. There's just so many more inputs than what I really, what you really stop and think about until you're kind of thinking more mindfully of it. We do use a lot on our farm, even though we're also very limited till to no till. And we do a lot of our, like a lot of our cattle movement and stuff is on foot and those kinds of things. But there's still a lot of fuel being burnt on our farm that I hadn't yeah. really thought of before. Yeah, it's easy just to go to the bulk tank and fill up and <laughs> not think about it too much. But when I wrote the book, I, I more or less took the mindset as if for some reason I couldn't buy diesel fuel or nitrogen fertilizer within, say, two years, what would I do? Would I <laughs> sit down and cry or would I get up and innovate? And I decided that, you know, we're pretty smart. <laughs> I think we could innovate our way out of that without any trouble. Something that you just don't think about until you're kind of drawn into thinking about like what happened if, yeah, like you said, in two years, we don't have access to that or in five years, we don't have access to that. And what happens if it's all of a sudden and it's not a gradual decline. There's some big things to think about. I guess COVID gave us a 
little more time to think too about you know what happens when certain things are taken away from us and you know how do we cope and and how resilient are we and you know can we overcome those kind of adversities You talk about some compelling evidence that there are dramatic changes in our climate happening with the occurrence of extreme weather events. Can you share how this has impacted your farm in the past years and what the broader impacts are for Canadian egg production? I was kind of taking an inventory of that um, this morning. And and in the last 10 years, we probably have had hail seven or eight times. And we used to be one of the lowest hail risk areas in the province. So that's changed dramatically for us. In one year, we had hail on, I think, 32 quarters of land and some of it 100%. Wow. So luckily, we had some good hail insurance and crop insurance. So financially, it didn't hurt us. But you know, somebody's got to pay for that. And somebody doesn't have something to eat. Luckily, it's not everybody that gets hailed out in one year. And then we had plow winds come through that we've never seen those before. We used to own the two wooden elevators in town, and one plow wind came through and it knocked the top off the good elevator. The other elevator was rotten, so I ended up tearing them both down. Another plow wind came through our our main yard, and it blew apart a building I just put up. We have seen some tornadoes. Thank goodness the tornado that came through here, I believe, in 2007, didn't do any significant damage on on yards that were inhabited. Like it tore some shingles off. And but I had a yard that had an abandoned house on it. It was a two and a half story house, and it ripped it right down to the foundation. There was nothing left. Yeah, and we've had quite a few bins, hopper bins in particular, get blown over. Uh, even though we anchor them down, and we've had some neighbors that have forty thousand bushel bins, and it's pushed the sides in, and they've had to rebuild or replace those bins and these are things that we you know they're not normal and and then you know the one we we never know if we have a drought if that's increased in frequency from climate change or if that's you know we've always had droughts and excess water here but it's the frequency i guess it's it seems to be getting worse can you share why fossil fuel <laughs> use is so detrimental when we're thinking about global warming and the future of the earth it's hard to grasp, but we burn as as humanity a hundred million barrels of oil every day. Not not in a year, not in a month, not in a week, but every day. Uh, it's almost incomprehensible how much oil and coal and natural gas that we use in the world. And every time those are are burnt, they release carbon dioxide or methane or nitric oxide, and they contribute to the you know, this really delicate balance of keeping just the, you know, it's kind of like the Goldilocks principle. We want it, the temperature to be just right. And in the world, I think it's 15 degrees is the average world temperature. And if it goes up a couple degrees, that, that's not good. Humans are, are really adaptable. But I have one story in the book where I talk about going to a conference and the vice president of sustainability for Highliner Seafoods was there. And he talked about the closing of the cod fishery in the East Coast. And he said it wasn't so much from overfishing, it was from climate change. He said that was the first time he had seen firsthand the effect of a small temperature change on the feedstocks of the cod. So they put a fishing moratorium on the on the fishery, and nobody fished for quite some time, and the cod didn't come back. So, you know, the Newfoundlanders are still there, but the cod isn't. So, you know, humans are pretty resilient, but if the ecosystems that we depend on disappear, then we're kind of in trouble. Sometimes we feel better if we just don't think about all these things, but they're real and and we really should not ignore them any longer. I think it's easy too to think, well, it's one or two degrees. Yeah. So what difference really can that make? But when you start thinking about it and you start looking into it and doing a bit of research, you realize that there's a huge change for, like you said, some of those ecosystems and the plants and animals that are within them that happen with a one or two degree difference. It doesn't need to be a five or 10 degree difference to wipe out a species or to really make a change to that environment. Absolutely. I think in the news the other day, it said Alberta was going to have a 30 or 40 degrees change in two days. So 
when we talk about one and a half or two degrees, it's, it seems like nothing, but it is real and, and these species can't tolerate that. There's lots of examples of species declining and also other species that are predatory, finding a niche and, and destroying the ecosystem from that perspective as well. What are some solutions that you can see to ending the use of fossil fuels? Well, the way I see in agriculture that we can reduce or and eliminate the use of fossil fuels are a couple. And, and the first one is is cattle. If you can raise cattle on pasture, you're mimicking what the buffalo did. So you're going to build soils and, and you shouldn't need very much diesel fuel to do that. On a grain farm, uh, and, and because of the economics of cattle and the demand for, for the beef, I don't see there being a large increase in the cow herd in Western Canada. In fact, it, it's been going down for quite a few years. But on my grain farm, what I would substitute for nitrogen fertilizer, which is one of the biggest greenhouse gas items on our farm, both from the production of the nitrogen fertilizer, because it uses what they call steam reform natural gas to make it right now, and also from a nitric oxide emission point of view. Certainly, if we use too much nitrogen fertilizer, the emissions go up dramatically. There is a program called the 4Rs, and I think that's okay as far as it goes, but if we want to really eliminate nitrogen fertilizer based on fossil fuels, we have to go further. And the five things that I would consider is using as many legumes, which make their own nitrogen as much as possible, using zero-till. There's work done in North Dakota State University that shows if you can zero-till for at least five years, you should be able to reduce your nitrogen rate on wheat by 40 pounds, which some of the research I've done, that's about 50% of your nitrogen that's, that's required for wheat production. And there's some evidence in southeastern North Dakota that they can reduce the nitrogen rate on zero-till corn by, by two-thirds. So that's number two. Number three is asymbiotic nitrogen fixers. And there's a company called Fuel Positive that's trying to get the very first on-farm green hydrates plant in Manitoba this coming December. So it's the same process that is used with the fossil fuel-based fertilizer, except that it uses green electricity and through a process called electrolysis that takes water and splits it into hydrogen and oxygen. And then the hydrogen is combined with atmospheric nitrogen to make anhydrous ammonia. And, and then the last thing would be the four R's where we're trying to make that little bit of green and hydrous, just that much more efficient. So we really reduce the emissions. In terms of diesel fuel, my favorite is straight vegetable. And I have a friend down in Montana in some really dry country that wanted to produce his own fuel. The only thing he could grow down there was safflower. And he picked a high oleic safflower variety and he grew it. And then he crushed it and he refined the oil. And he also realized it was a really valuable cooking oil. So he sold it to the local community college and university from their food services prep area. And when they were done with it, they gave it back to him as waste vegetable oil. And then he further refined it and then he used it in his tractor. So his cost of fuel was next to nothing. And it was, and it had no emissions, or I shouldn't say it had no emissions. It, it wasn't made from fossil fuels. Um, it still could have emissions shouldn't be any worse than diesel fuel. There's certainly companies working on using hydrogen uh, from a green source. And green and hydrous ammonia is a carrier of hydrogen and can be used as a fuel up to 90% replacement of diesel fuels. You know, all our half tons and quads could certainly be electric uh, in the not too distant future. Even our semis but I think that our main tractors and combines, would, we'd have a difficult time converting those into something other than diesel fuel replacements, such as straight vegetable oil or waste vegetable oil or biodiesel in, in a very short time. I was thinking about how brilliant the business plan is that your friend has of selling the oil <laughs> and then getting the oil back as a waste product, essentially, to then run his tractor that. That's a fabulous business plan if you can make it work. 
Yeah, unfortunately, there's not enough fryer oil in Western Canada to do that. But I, I've done the math a few times. And even using, for instance, if you could crush canola on your own farm and had a, a market for the meal that was of market value, whether you fed them to your own livestock or you sold them to a neighbor or, or whatever you did with them, if you could get market value free for the meal, the, the oil itself was cheaper than diesel fuel. And... You know, it, it sounds bad, you know, you're going to use canola oil to feed your tractor. Well, we used to feed horses, of course, and they used a lot more acres than it takes to grow canola to feed your combine or your tractor. I, My calculations were it, after you take the meal contribution away that you, you sell or use as feed or food, it only takes 2 or 3% of your total land area to produce enough straight vegetable oil for all your on-farm motive requirements. That's um, interesting. So it's not very much. The other thing is that in the U.S., 40% of the corn crop goes into producing ethanol for fuel. So taking 2 or 3% of our cropland to make our own fuel is, I don't think it's a bad trade-off. How does regenerative agriculture restore natural cycles and provide nutrients for the soil? Well, regenerative Agriculture is trying to take us back to how nature has built our soils in the first place. So if you look at a natural tall grass prairie, you've got a lot of diversity of species. You've got cover on the ground all the time, and you've got something growing essentially from snow to snow and, and maybe even a little longer. And and then herds of buffalo or well-managed cattle come through and do a quick graze on that as they're being pursued by predators and they that's the way to build healthy soils that are resilient and hold a lot of water and are, are very productive so when we broke our soils back 150 years ago only tools we had was was tillage tools and plows and discs and we did a lot of destruction then the only thing we really had to control weeds was more tillage some plant competition but in reality more tillage so, you know, we lost 50% of our soil organic carbon. We caused a lot of erosion, both wind and water. So the closer we can get back to that natural state of having something growing all the time and having cover on the ground, having a certain amount of diversity, and we still have to pay the bills. And in order to do that, we have to grow food, not only for our own substance, but also, of course, to feed the cities. And I've been to various conferences and, and they're all excited about growing their own food. And, and I, I have no problems with that. People in the city should have gardens. You know, they, they can produce some good food and, and it's good exercise from a mental and physical point of view. So there's nothing wrong with that at all. But these cities are huge. Um, you know, you get 7, 10, 20, 25 million people that can't grow their own food. You know, they need us to do that for them. What are some steps that you're taking on your farm to reduce and eventually eliminate the use of fossil fuels? And what is your target date to be fossil fuel free? Things we're doing on our own farm to get rid of fossil fuel based products is largely the nitrogen strategies that I've outlined, as well as diesel fuel substitutes. In terms of when, I'd like to be able to get rid of the nitrogen based fossil fuel fertilizers. Within the next year or two, we're growing legumes in the rotation. We're, we're zero tilling. We're adding cover crops to try to get plants to grow from snow to snow. We have certainly seen some gaps in terms of what the technology is for cover crops. And I'm working as hard as I can to try to get research done on delayed seed germination technology so that we could sow our cover crops when we're sowing our spring crops, but they wouldn't germinate till some species we might want to germinate 30 days after seeding. So we could spray out the weeds and then they would then they would come. And others, we may not want them to come for say 90 days after seeding. So it's just kind of when the leaves start to drop, the main cash crop's going to senesce, but you're a week or two before you could get it in if you had to harvest first. So those would give us tremendous advantages in terms of actually getting those crops in. My my wife has this saying about whenever I get off the combine and I go and seed in the fall, she calls it 
seasonal seating disorder. <laughs> and, and she's asked me to stop, <laughs> maybe even go and see a counselor. <laughs> so if we could do that in one pass with the same air seater, it's so unreliable in our country in this dry region or sometimes wet region to try to seed while you're combining. First of all, logistics are terrible. Second is if it is dry enough, it's because there's the drought and the soil in our area is about 25% sand. And when it's dry, the wear factor in our drills can be four times higher. So we're really reluctant to do that, to wreck our equipment, to get a cover crop in. And then there's some years it's just too wet. So sometimes it's too dry and sometimes it's wet. And more often than not, it's too dry, too wet, too late. Mm-hmm. So we need a different technology to get those cover crops in so they can actually do some good. What are some of the major breakthrough moments that you've had? And controversial to that, what are some things that you've tried that didn't work? I had some research plots we put down this year, which we were able to experiment with green seeding. And I'd done a little bit in the past, but uh, we did a more extensive trial this year. And, And green seeding is when you sow something like fall rye in the fall, you let it grow in the fall and again in the spring, and then you manage it according to the moisture. If it's really dry, you may want to take it out with a herbicide early. If it's really wet, you may want to leave it there. And you could sow a pulse crop into that. And we had just some tremendously good pulse crops using green seeding. So the green seeding allows you to have plants growing longer in the season, both fall and spring. And other than the burn off of the fall rye, prior to the pulse crop coming up, emerging, we didn't have to spray anything else on that crop. So it saved us a lot of time and money and it was better for the soil. So so we went from small plots to I sowed six quarters. The things that didn't work, it's primarily been the organic. It takes anywhere from one and a half to three times as many acres to feed the same number of people as as you can feed in a zero till situation. So we just couldn't find that sustainable I know there's niches where that can work. And there's a fellow by the name of Clark out of Indiana. And he farms at scale, about 7,000 acres. But he's got three things that I'll never have. He gets 40 inches of rain, more or less consistently, and not all at harvest. He has a mild enough winter he can actually grow a winter annual legume for green seeding his corn into. and, And we don't really have that. And his neighbor is an organic dairyman. So anything that they find to be weedy, they can chop. That particular niche, you can do regenerative, no-till, organic, but uh, I just couldn't make it work here. And I think it can work closer to the cities for market gardens, particularly when they can bring in enough compost and manure to to keep the fertility up. But, you know, we, we have to look for what I call pragmatic solutions for, for grain farmers. There's about 78 million acres of grain farm in Western Canada. And unless we can give farmers like myself and those other farmers that farm the 78 million acres solutions that don't require cattle, that they can make at least as much money and and hopefully reduce their risk. If we can't do that, they're not going to change. So that's that's kind of my goal in the next period of time that I have to, to work on these things. I think that leads really well into my next question. In my mind, I was thinking, as you were saying that too, about the financial side of it, like you said, farmers, if they're going to make these changes, need to be making at least the same amount that they're making, doing what they're already doing, or it's going to be really hard to sell that idea. So um, you've shared already why it's important from a personal and a global perspective to be talking about this. On page 148 of your book, you state consumers, investors, and big business are turning away from organizations that do not have a well-thought-out climate mitigation plan. Start your education and planning today. And on page 180, you go on to say that it is rare when the right thing can be the profitable thing. To me, this speaks to the essential financial perspective. What trend are you seeing in what consumers want from producers as far as their sustainability plans? And how does this relate to the financial success of farms? Yeah, I think that's best illustrated by the the interest that the food manufacturers and retailers are starting to have in agriculture. I'm part of the General Mills program uh, where they're trying to help us 
learn about regenerative agriculture and they don't do very well if, if ultimately if we don't do very well if we're not sustainable so they're they're starting to join the pieces together i have a diagram that i'm i'm using in my research and it shows farmers having what i might call a, a dual personality or a dual role in society the the old role the traditional role of course is that we're there to produce food fiber and, and fuel the new role is that we're there to produce global warming mitigation credits or you know sometimes called carbon credits or you know whatever however you define that and zero till is one of those practices that could go on both sides of those and it's a no regret practice because it actually pays us we can pay ourselves by adapting to zero till production uh, it reduces our cost our machinery our labor increases our ability to hold moisture uh, build soil organic carbon reduce erosion and in particularly in Saskatchewan, people wouldn't think of farming without zero till. So it's it's a no regret best management practice that produces food, but it also produces global warming mitigation credits that we don't get paid for yet and, and did didn't don't really need to for that matter. But there's other practices like cover crops. So we have to come up with technologies that allow us to do that easier. So we can build our soil organic carbon. The costs are, are lower. And we might find that it, you know, we just can't make it work completely on our own. The risk is either too high or the payback is too long. And so we, we might get some value from the food side, but we may also need value from the carbon credit side. So we're going to have to work on those things. Personally, I'd rather get it from the food side or you know, the production side rather than trying to figure out carbon credits and going after grants and things that are a bit nebulous at this this point in time, but it might be necessary. And the general public will have to decide if we can't afford to do it on our own, if it's valuable enough, will they contribute to, to helping us get it done? What things are you looking forward to trying on your farm in the future? Well, I, I would like us to be a net positive grain farm. Uh, I don't know if I'll get it done this year, but I, I, in the next two years, I'd like to be able to demonstrate to other farmers that we can actually do this. That's kind of the dream right now. That's a great goal to have, a great dream to work towards. Yeah. Building on your efforts, where do you think that we as an industry can do better in implementing on-farm research and subsequently adopting promising outcomes to reach these broad climate goals. That reminds me of a friend of mine. He said, there's only one thing wrong in this farm and it's the nut behind the steering wheel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you know, it's largely you know, why I wrote the book and, and created what I think is the challenge. You know, Can we do better? Can we innovate? You know, If we can't do it on our own, some of this is not tinkering in the shop anymore, but we might need people that with deep pockets, delayed germination, seed technology for cover crops that, that we buy and use. Or, you know, I would really like Ag Canada to take on that kind of goal or some of the universities. Recognizing there's an actual problem, recognizing that we have continually evolved from what we thought was best management practices to something that's even better, that, you know, we're not there yet. We have a ways to go. Getting kind of everybody paddling in the same direction. We we have to be pragmatic, not just idealistic. When I wrote the book, I was more idealistic. You know, if we had a clean sheet of paper, how would we redesign the world so that we would have a better place? And that's not possible. Not in the short period of time that we have really to get it done. So, you know, what do we use to make those grain farms uh, more sustainable? in fact, truly sustainable. I was at a conference last week where there was a speaker talking about a sustainability index. And he said that, you know, we have sustainable beef and we have sustainable canola. And I said, no, we don't. <laughs> we have more sustainable canola and we have more sustainable beef than we had before. But if we're still using diesel fuel and still using fossil fuel-based nitrogen fertilizers, we're not sustainable. And he he appreciated that. And he's a fellow that I've known for quite a few years. He actually said he wouldn't have expected less from me than that criticism. 
people that didn't know that we knew each other were maybe thought I was a bit hard on them, but it, it was okay. We had supper after. How have the topics in your book influenced your PhD dissertation work? And can you share kind of the nutshell of what you're studying and the biggest surprise you've experienced so far in returning to academic studies? Uh, well, the book is the foundation of, of the thesis. And in the nutshell is I'm going to develop these 10 best management practices as kind of initial starting point. And then I'm going to try to find the 10 most innovative net positive carbon grain farmers in, in the Great Plains. And they won't know that that's who they are. And they may, may only do one of those 10 best management practices, but they may do it in a way that nobody else is doing it. So that's that's innovation. So I'm going to try to piece that together. And I would like to develop a net positive network, which is farmer-led grassroots. That's an innovation platform for farmers becoming net positive. And we might have to call it zero till plus if, you know, if they don't want to do it because it's going to save the planet and they just want to do it because it saves their own soil. Uh, I don't care. <laughs> but as long as we save something, um, it would be great. I really enjoyed the courses. I've all done my courses. I've, I've written a 55-page research proposal. It got accepted. That was all quite enjoyable. The next part, I, I don't know how that's going to go. I, I don't think we have a lot of time to get this right. And me spending the next three or four years writing a thesis and then converting it to farmer language, I don't know if, if I can do that. Or, well, I can do that, but I there, there was an old commercial um, by Visa and it, it showed this guy running down an old Spanish street, kind of zigging and zagging and looking over his shoulder. And, you know, there's nobody else there. And the commercial was about, you know, if he would have had used Visa, he would have been there when the bulls actually ran. <laughs> but as it was, he was a day late. And I don't know if the thesis is going to make me a day late. So I'm working as hard as I can to kind of operationalize what I think needs to be done. So we'll see what happens with the thesis, but rest assured, I, I need to help develop a net positive educational platform and maybe house a net positive network and encourage a net positive community of practice to support that net positive network. Well, those are, I think, where I'm going to have most impact. Since I'm 66 and most of my older neighbors are heading down somewhere warm in the next week. I'm here. I have to do what's kind of most impactful. If you could challenge listeners to one thing that would move them in the direction towards being truly sustainable or regenerative, what would that be? I think our greatest challenge comes from Ray Arcoletta. He was part of Understanding Egg, and he was a, he is a, well, he's retired, but he was a soil conservation person down in all over the U.S., I guess. But he said, if there's only one thing you can do, it's making sure that the plants are growing from snow to snow. That will give you the biggest boost for your effort. It's also the hardest, of course. <laughs> and if you do that, uh, you can't till. You tend to have to have diversity. It, it covers all the regenerative principles pretty much 100%. You know, that would be the one thing. And we're kind of getting towards the end here. If listeners are interested in getting a copy of your book, where can they find it? We have a web page called fossilfuelfreefarming.com. It's all one word. It's also possible to just give me a call if you want to use my phone number, 204-534-7531. Or if you forget the longer email address, you can go to our farm webpage, RourkeFarms.com. I also have quite a bit of research results that we've done on, on the farm. Some of the older ones are from our organic days, and some of this year's, most of this year's, are kind of zero-till orientated things where I look at some of the new biologicals or, or more efficient ways of trying to put nitrogen fertilizer down or the things like green and brown seeding and a little bit with how to make glyphosate uh, more efficient now that it's gone up in price. Perfect. And I will add both those websites and your phone number into the show notes for this episode so that if there are listeners that want to get in contact with you or want to get a hold of the book, then they can go there 
Is there any last thoughts that you want to share before we wrap up today? Well, I, other than really thanking you for the the interview and and the fact you spent some time reading this book and maybe understand it better than I do right now. So I, I thank you for that opportunity. And I might also note that for people that find it difficult to read the book, there's also an audio version and a, and an ebook version. Well, thank you so much for all of your time. And I, I really did enjoy reading the book. I wasn't sure because I am, I'm involved in our farm, but I'm not always kind of the boots on the ground now that I'm at home with our son and working with MBFI, but I haven't been here for a super long time. So I wasn't entirely sure how, how much I was going to understand, to be honest, but I, I really appreciated that it was written so that farmers could understand it and people outside of the egg industry, I'm sure could pick it up and have a really good understanding of what you've written. You've done a fantastic job of putting it out in a way that people can understand and relate. And I think that that's, that's so important. Well, thank you. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without funding from the province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and Canadian Agricultural Partnership, as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, Ducks Unlimited Canada, and the Manitoba Forage and Grassland Association. for joining us for another episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the on-farm projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at MB Beef and Forage. For full project reports and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project supporter, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. We've got lots to share.